My name is Doug Hill. If you don't know me, I'm a ruling elder here at Grace Presbyterian Church. Occasionally, Ryan has me preach. Um, I'm going to preach this week. Um, John Sackett is going to be preaching next week because Ryan is preparing for the fall sermon series on the life of David. And many of you are teachers. You realize if you're going to do a semester class, it takes quite a bit of preparation. Two weeks is barely enough to get started. So he's not idle. He is working, working hard. So you've got me this morning. Uh, I'm going to read two scriptures, uh, but I'm asking you to, to not turn there. One of the things I did at Carnicuck was I talked about how as human beings, we've gone through two culture changes. We started out as people in an oral culture where we learned through the ear. And that was the main way that we learned. People talked, they were good at hearing, and they were good at listening, and they were good at remembering. Then we went through a print culture where books were king, and so we learned through our eyes to our brains, and we were good at logical thinking. Uh, so then we went, now we're going through a visual culture. And so it's good, though, as we go through different culture shifts to go back and not forget what we've learned. So I'm going to ask you to exercise your ears this morning as if we're in, a, in, a, uh, in an oral culture. All right? So listen as I read uh, the scripture from 1 John 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 2 Corinthians 3, another scripture. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, for most of us, you have taken that veil away. You have drawn us by your Spirit and caused us to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. You sent your Son to earth to live so we could see the glory of the Lord. And by studying his life and his uh, take on the old things, we are being transformed into his likeness little by little. Father, we want to see your love for us as we look at Jesus' life. As we trust in you, help us to never doubt your love again. Through Jesus we ask, amen. When John the Baptist announced the soon appearance of the coming one, he said he would forgive sins, but he also said that he would baptize in fire. He would clear the rubbish from his threshing floor and burn this chaff with unquenchable fire. Ooh. So what kind of Messiah would you have expected, even from the announcement of this herald? I would have expected a mighty, omnipotent king sitting on a throne. The forgiveness that John talked about would only come as you approached the throne as a beggar and fell on your face and wept for mercy. And if he happened to hold forth his golden scepter as a sign of acceptance, you would quickly run out with your head bowed and be thankful for the rest of your life, but never approach that awful being again. For the Lord Most High is terrifying. He is a great king over all the earth. Psalm 47. Ah, but this is the year of the Lord's 
acceptance. Instead of this sudden and final appearance of this awesome king, what did the earth receive instead? Well, the angel, 30 years before this, announced the details this way. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. What? I expected some Melchizedek from out of nowhere, doing miracles, crushing the Romans, God's great champion. But God is not only great and strong, he is also very kind. Uh, Back in March, I preached a sermon on the kindness of Jesus. And I wanted to do these sermons because many of us do, as Ryan alluded to, at some times doubt the love of God for us. Or the cares and responsibilities of the world dry us up and we need to be wooed back into the presence of the one who loves us. Or the lust for money and the things money buys, pleasure, comfort, security, make us try to fill our hearts with the satisfaction that only the love of God can give. All right, so let's, I'm going to go through the life of Jesus and I'm going to present four vignettes of showing how the kindness of Jesus comes out in these four stories. The first one is the Roman centurion's slave. And you guys know all these stories, but uh, I'm going to, anyway, we're going to start. So, in this story, Jesus is at Capernaum, which is a fishing village on the north shore of Lake Galilee. And there's a Roman centurion there. He's a captain of a troop that is quartered there. And he sends a message to Jesus from some of the elders of the synagogue who tell him about the centurion's sick servant who's at the point of death. And the message is from the elders, Oh, Jesus, he's a worthy man. He loves our nation, and he even built us a new synagogue. Well, the first question I have is, why would this guy love Israel, and why would he build them a synagogue? I don't know. Maybe someone in his family was Jewish. Maybe the local rabbi had told him the stories of the Bible. Maybe his sick slave was a believer. Probably he had heard some of Jesus' teachings and seen his miracles. But whatever, the true God had revealed to him his goodness. As John Calvin said, before Christ healed his servant, he had been healed by the Lord. So he wanted to show gratitude to him and to his people, so he built them a new synagogue. And so they say, he's worthy. But the centurion knew that no rabbi, no teacher, no master in Israel would enter a Gentile's house. They would be defiled by the place and by the company. So in that sense, he's unworthy. So which is it, elders of the Jews? If he builds you a synagogue, he's worthy. But because he's unclean, because he's a Gentile, he's unworthy. Which is it? Which is why when Jesus gets near the home, he sends out another message. And and the Roman centurion says, I am not worthy to have you in my house. Now, I'm sure part of this was he just felt the unworthiness of being around a holy being. Just like when Peter saw the holiness of Jesus in the boat, what did he do? He fell down and he said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. I'm sure that was part of it. But part of it was he knew that a teacher in Israel would not enter his house. And so he was ceremonially unworthy. So his real question to Jesus is, it isn't, could you heal my slave, but would you do it? Not, are you powerful enough, but are you kind? Are you good 
Are you unprejudiced? My servant is paralyzed and at the point of death. Just say the word and I know he'll be healed. You've got to like this blunt soldier's humble faith. By the way, this man was a centurion, a captain of 50 to 100 of the finest soldiers in the world. Oh, and another, by the way, every centurion in the Bible, there's like five or six of them in the New Testament, they're all good and they're all honorable. So, but he says, I'm not worthy of you, but I do understand authority and power. I tell my soldiers, do this, and they do it because I have the power and authority of Rome behind my commands. What does Jesus say to him? I haven't found faith like this even among Israelites. This man is going to sit down and feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. What? The Jews believed that when the Messiah would come, all Israel would be gathered to a great feast with the patriarchs and the heroes of their faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sitting at the head. And just like each Sabbath was a feast for them, this was going to be the world's great Sabbath. And the Messiah himself would entertain his guests. But there was one rule nobody disagreed with. Gentiles could not come to this feast. And to say this man's going to sit down with the heroes of the faith. That would have been a rude shock to these Jewish elders. They would say, Jesus, you're turning our religion upside down. Stop it. And the servant was healed. What can we learn? Jesus is good. He's not prejudiced. His kingdom is for all. He's powerful, but he especially loves to show his goodness to people of humble faith. Okay, next story. Jesus is still teaching in Capernaum, and he's in Peter's home. This is the healing of the paralytic, those of you who want to find a place in the Bible, Thomas. So they're still in the lakeshore. They're still in Capernaum. The house is full. It's like standing room only in Peter's inner courtyard, and the throng is spilling out into the streets. There were Pharisees there and doctors of the law, and they're probably sitting next to Jesus because they like the best seats, right? And then, if I can look from Peter's point of view, it's his house. All hell just breaks loose. If I'm Peter, I'm saying, what are those ding-dongs doing? You're tearing up my roof. And here comes four guys with a pallet coming down through. The, they split open the tiles of the roof, and they're, they're finding, they're pushing, and they're, it's loud, and they're, they're pushing this way into, into front of Jesus. And I'm sure the leaders, the Jewish leaders, are sitting there and thinking, this is what happens when you encourage the common people. You know? <laughs> but these guys are desperate. They don't care. You know, they want to see Jesus. I'm sure the other people, people like you and me, if we were Jews, we'd be sitting there saying, ooh, this is going to be good. Because <laughs> Jesus is there, but the leaders are there, and here comes this guy. I can't wait to see what happens. The rabbis had two teachings about sickness. One you couldn't be healed from sickness unless your sins had been forgiven first. And that's kind of why in John 9 they tell uh, about the blind man who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way. But then that begs the question, how could your sins be forgiven by God at this time? If you tell me I'm sick because I'm sinful, well, how can I get the sins removed so that I'm not sick anymore, right? <clears throat> I, I would think you would, you would help me with that problem. Well, this is a difficult thing because in the old system, 
if you just believed just the bare sacrificial system of the Old Testament, that couldn't take away sins just by itself. No, those were types and shadows and pictures of the Christ to come. And if you saw them that way, you could be saved through faith in the Messiah to come. Kind of like we, when we take the Lord's Supper, we see a picture of Christ. We don't trust in the elements, we trust in Christ, of course. So, but if you just believe the sacrifices of the animals of the Old Testament, there was actually no forgiveness in that. I mean, listen to this. And we see this in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, written for Jewish Christians. Imagine if this were the way your sins were forgiven. The old system of sacrifices was only a dim preview of good things to come. The priest stands before the altar day after day, offering animals first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He offers the same sacrifices again and again, year after year. And it's sad because the blood of animals can never take away sins. They also were not able to provide perfect cleansing for the worshipers because they were not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who brought the animals and the grains and the wine. So the rabbis said, because sacrifices had stopped long before this, they said, if you want your sins forgiven, you must repent and pray and do good deeds and maybe God will be merciful. Really? That's the best you've got? That's the best they had. They also taught, though, that suffering in their body, in your body, cleansed away sin. Just like in the law, this was their reasoning. If a slave lost an eye or a tooth through his master's cruelty, that slave could go free. So the sufferings of your whole body would free the soul from guilt. Wow, thanks. So a kind rabbi might tell this guy, this is the best he could do. Confess your sins, my son. Pray and wait for the Lord. Now, I love this healing of the paralyzed man. I would expect what, what would happen here is Jesus would heal the paralytic and say something like, I've come for the desperate, not for the self-satisfied. That's kind of what I expect him to do. But Jesus, he looks at them and he sees their faith. The faith of the paralyzed man and the faith of the four people who bring, bring him down. And I'm sure that paralyzed man is rattled and scared, right? And the first thing Jesus says to him, he says, take courage, my child. Be confident in me. Your sins are forgiven. What? The religious leaders, they immediately call Jesus out on that. That's flat blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, ever patient, ever loving, he turns to them and he begins to reason with them. They love reason. Reason this, you reasoners. He says, which is easier, for me to say the words, your sins are forgiven, or to make this man walk, but that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And right at that second, he looks away from them. It cuts it off right in mid-conversation. I love that part. That you may know that the Son of God has power on earth to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. Wow. I like the way Jesus just takes charge. 
In other words, he says, in effect, away with all your reasonings on Scripture. I am the life-giving one. Bam! Take up your pallet and walk. Okay, I almost got emotional there. Let's, let's dial it down. It kind of reminds me, in a far lesser way, of Juno's parents in the movie Juno. Anyone? Juno? Yay! No. Okay, watch that movie. It's good. When she, Juno, confesses to her parents that she's pregnant, at first they're disappointed and angry, but they take their confused, scared daughter and they move into action mode. The mother, first things first, we got to get you healthy. You need prenatal vitamins. Incidentally, they do incredible things for your nails, so that's a plus. Oh, and we need to schedule a doctor's appointment, find out where you're going to deliver. The dad, Juno, I want to come with you to meet these adoption people. You're just a kid. I don't want you to get ripped off by a couple of baby-starved wingnuts. So they know exactly what to do for their wandering daughter. So we likewise, we're in good hands with Jesus. He's kind. Let's go to him desperate and believing and watch him heal us from the ground up. Okay, so that's the paralyzed man. You guys, that's two. We got two more, okay? That's the paralyzed man, the man whose body is paralyzed. Even worse, in my view, than a, than a paralyzed body is a paralyzed mind. The disciples come over the Lake of Galilee to the opposite shore, and of course, Jesus does it all wrong again. He goes into a Gentile district and into a cemetery. These are both unclean places. Well, here comes Satan in the form of two naked, crazy guys out of the graveyards just shrieking. Matthew says it's two people. Mark and Luke says it's one person. So it's probably one guy full of a legion of demons who's more vocal and crazy and his sidekick. Here they come. But the demons aren't there for a fight. They know this is God in the flesh. They're begging for mercy as they come out of the cemetery. And they, I mean, that's how strong God is. Please don't torment us. It's not yet judgment day. Send us into the pigs. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus allows the demons to go into the herd of pigs that are feeding on the top of the bluff. They enter the herd. The pigs run furiously down the steep bank and drown themselves in the lake. Now, the next morning, the townsmen come out to the shore. What do they see? They see Jesus with old Legion and his sidekick. But look at that. They're clothed. And they're in their right mind. And they're, they're sitting at his feet like regular disciples. But they also see it's true. Their pigs aren't there. Come on. People are more important than pigs. So I imagine what they thought was, Okay, he is powerful, and we're a little afraid of what he can do, but he just took our money away. So what do they say? Please, leave. Jesus is very kind. Even if he sometimes takes away our stuff so we can experience him in a deeper way. But I want to talk about Jesus can heal the mind. I get excited about this. Um, I don't know anything about mental illness. Okay? I know nothing. But 
I was, in my early 40s, I'm 54 now, in my early 40s I was sick for, what was it, like a year and a half probably, two years, something like that. And I, I couldn't breathe. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I, I couldn't breathe, so I'd end up in the ER, you know, and doctors didn't know what it was. And my mind would just race. And, you know, I think before that I thought, wouldn't it be nice if my mind worked faster? Any, anybody know what I mean? You don't want your brain going too fast. You, you think you would. No, slow it right down. Yeah. So I can sympathize with people who have uh, mental illness. I can only imagine what it's like to live with that all the time. One thing I have had experience, long experience with, though, is my normal brain. I, Doug Hill, I'm a, I'm a thinker. I don't, I don't even know if I'm a good thinker or a bad. I don't really know, but I think. I'm curious about ideas. I analyze all the time, and some of you do too. It's how God made us. I'm not saying it, it's better, it's worse. It's just, it's just who I am, I think. So let me talk about the mind for just a little bit. When I w- became a Christian, I was 21. I was at OSU. I was an atheist before that, and I became a Christian. And I was so blown away when Jesus saved me that I was, from God's perspective, intellectually, a fool. 1 Corinthians 1, that God had fooled me that the message of the cross was foolishness to the wise of this world, that Greeks and intellectuals seek wisdom, and God goes on with his dumb message and saves the lowly, the poor in spirit, the underdog. Fantastic. Another proof for God. I saw in Romans that part of the fall was that our foolish minds were darkened, that the smartest people are like those who are looking in a dark mirror from 1 Corinthians, especially in Ephesians, where I saw that I was spiritually dead, but that I could be healed of the lusts and the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We think, and maybe this will serve as a uh, warning for those of you who are in college, sorry, you guys probably get all the warnings, but, uh, or those of you who are going to enter college soon. Some people think that in the West, since the Enlightenment, our physical brains are objective truth-tellers. Objective truth-tellers. We'll admit that occasionally our wills will go astray. Sometimes our emotions can get the better of us. But uh, the brain is unbiased. Its deliberations are infallible. So that somehow a clever person has a serious leg up in understanding important truths in life. Don't believe this lie. That's a lie. The intellect is a good servant, but a terrible master. I, so I, I became a Christian, and I started sharing my faith with people on the OSU campus. The tables were turned, and now all of a sudden, I was the stupid one. And I, I, I got so frustrated, if I'd have known Aaron Reeves, I wanted to get a shirt that said, The mind without God don't think right. I was also an English major, so I thought that was funny. And I I read a poem last week. Um, Without God's kindness to me, I would have probably ended up writing something like this, only in a much worse style. So see if you can sympathize with brain brain people here. This, this This is what their inner life is like. Not really, but... 
Where are the loves that we have loved before when once we are alone and shut the door? No matter whose the arms that held me fast, the arms of darkness hold me at the last. No matter down what primrose path I tend, I kiss the lips of silence in the end. No matter when or how love did befall, tis loneliness that loves me best of all, and in the end she claims me, and I know that she will stay, though all the rest may go. That's depressing. <laughs> all right. But Jesus can heal and renew our minds. So let's give our minds to him and renew them daily with the spiritual food of the scriptures. All right, last vignette. So this one's the question about fasting. John the Baptist has been thrown into prison at this point in Jesus' ministry. And his disciples come to Jesus, and I think they're being sincere. They're, they're looking for answers, right? They, they don't know. And so one of the things they ask him, they say, Jesus, we fast, and the Pharisees fast twice a week. Why don't your disciples fast? I mean, it's kind of in the Bible. And the rabbis had, had uh, they looked at fasting this way. They looked at it as an external rule that got results. So fasting was self-punishment, mortification, that took away the anger of God, that averted drought or pestilence or even national danger. In other words, you didn't fast to get closer to God. You fasted so that bad things wouldn't happen to you. Which kind of makes sense. They set up Thursdays and Mondays as fast days. Moses, Moses supposedly went up to get the tablets of the law the second time on Thursday and returned on Monday. So that's the background of fasting when they ask him this question. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast, but instead eat and drink? And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is still with them? The last time that John had witnessed about this Messiah, he told his disciples, He is the Messiah, the bridegroom. I am just his friend, the friend of the bridegroom. Part of a Jewish wedding ceremony was this. My son Jonathan is getting married October 7th, so we're, love is in the air. Marriage preparation is in the air. So part of the Jewish uh, wedding ceremony was this. On the evening, and some of you guys know this, but on the evening of the marriage service, the friend of the bridegroom would go to the bride's home and lead her and her bridesmaids to the home of the bridegroom. In this procession, there would be happy music and wine and praise of the bride and flowers, and if you were along the road or you heard it, it was your duty to enter into this joyful procession, and you all marched and sang and laughed and ate, and then you went to uh, the bridegroom's home, and you had a wedding service, and then the honeymoon there would last probably a week of revelry and laughter and joy. So you get what Jesus is saying when he asks, can you make the wedding guests fast? Your teacher, John, said I was the bridegroom, and he, as the friend of the bridegroom, led you to me. I am so happy. This is a time of rejoicing. My bride is coming to me. And you want me to teach the wedding guests how to fast? Jesus loves his people. He could have left it there. He could have said, 
I'm only going to be here for a while. Let's just enjoy it. There'll be time for fasting later. Or he could have spelled it out in plain words like you do in a sermon, something like this. You really don't understand that God loves you. And from that understanding, you are set free to live in joy. And when you sin or when I seem absent from you, you'll fast. But it won't be because you're looking for a favor or because something bad's happened to you. But it'll be to get closer to me. What he does do is he gives them two parables. And I would paraphrase them something like this. When you put a new patch on an old shirt, when that patch gets wet and contracts, it pulls apart the old cloth. New wine put in an old bladder as it's fermenting will expand and rip the wineskin. Well, what in the world does that mean? I would, I would explain it something like this. You, you, my people, you Jewish people, it's like you've stitched all these scriptures into a shirt that's gotten really old. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to change you first. It's like you're going to be the cloth and you're going to be brand new. I'm going to make you a new wineskin and then I'm going to pour in really good wine and you'll be able to hold it. Nobody likes change though at first, but afterward you'll know how to fast and lots of other things with the right motives. And you'll understand its relative importance in the scheme of things. Anyway, isn't Jesus good? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as I was uh, finishing this up, I, I thought of an old chorus we used to sing. Think about his love. Think about his goodness. Think about his grace that's brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. How could I forget his love? How could I forget his mercy? He satisfies. He satisfies my desires. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.